Welcome to episode 127 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. My family went to California to visit my wife's family for the holidays. Travel can be exhausting, especially with a one-year-old and a three-year-old. One concern parents have is how time zone changes will affect their kids. Well, ours were so tired when we arrived late, late at night in California, they fell right to sleep. And they woke up at their usual time the next morning and thankfully, not at an ungodly early hour. A week later, on December 29th, we were back in Boston and our kids' internal clocks were still set to the West Coast. Did we wake them up to get them reset to East Coast time? Nope. It was two days until New Year's Eve, and we were looking forward to staying late at our friend's party. We didn't stay until the ball dropped, but our little ones were still partying well past 9 p.m., and we felt a little more like adults and not just parents. Did we pay a price when it was time two days later for our toddler to get up for preschool? Nope. It all went fairly smoothly. The lesson? Sometimes you need to go against common wisdom and follow your instincts. Your challenge for this week. Is everyone around you swimming in one direction? Are you feeling pulled to go a different way? Worried you may pay a price for following your gut? Trust yourself. You know you best. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, on to this week's show. Today's guest believes everything she needed to know to succeed in her multi-sector career she learned by growing up in a town of 600 people. She's taken the lessons she learned and applied them to a career that has included Silicon Valley, a Fortune 100, nonprofit, and higher education organizations. After starting her career in California, she returned home to Ohio, where she helps her clients and audiences make wherever they are feel like a small town. She is passionate about sharing small town stories and leadership lessons and is a certified professional coach, avid writer, and award-winning public speaker. Please join me in welcoming Natalie Sisson. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Robbie. Oh, Natalie, thank you so much for joining me from your office in Dublin, Ohio. Thrilled to have you on. Uh, So, you know, as you know, this is a show about leadership and building strong networks. So tell me, what does leadership mean to you? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Such a simply put question, but very, very complicated to think about. For me, I think leadership is when you can help others realize their true potential, while at the same time, you continue to have your eye on the ball and you keep going after your own potential as well. And I think going to the part about where I, where I learn leadership, I go back to my upbringing in Republic, Ohio, and I learned leadership through 4-H. I learned it in the county fair and in the dusty barns. Um, I learned it in the hot summer days when we were putting together our 4-H projects. I think it was there when I learned that I had to go after my own unique path and do my own individual projects, but that I also had an opportunity to lead my fellow 4-Hers and be a club leader, show my peers what was possible. And together we had a great time. It was always fun. But at the end of the day, we also had something to show individually for all those efforts. 
I love that you brought this up. It so fits with your theme. <laughs> You're like so on brand. So my wife is from the Bay Area in California. And when I visit her family out there, we go to a county fair that has all the 4-H uh, projects on display. And it's awesome to see just the ingenuity and effort and the different skill levels based on age. And it's like, you know, you can really get into it as you get older. And I, I could see how being part of a community that really embraced that and that you were all in that together, both individually working on your projects and collectively having something to show for it. Um, was there someone who like saw leadership potential in you or did you sort of quietly just kind of get your stuff done? I think it was a little bit of both. So the biggest memory I have from 4-H and the thing that I take from it now many years later, let's call it 30 years later, is my public speaking. So a lot of people associate 4-H with having a cow or riding a horse, that kind of thing. Well, I didn't live on a working farm. I lived on a non-working farm growing up. So I did sewing, I did cooking. And then one day someone told me that you could do public speaking in 4-H and so I stepped forward as a nine-year-old and said, okay, well, I'll try this. And from there, I think that it was, it was all the leaders who saw in this little pipsqueak who got up front in front of a stage and showed people how to make oatmeal cookies. You know, someone saw something in me back when I was that little kid. And I think about that moment whenever I get on the stage to give a big keynote or address an audience. I just remind myself where I started. It was literally delivering a 4-H demonstration in a dusty barn in the, at the Seneca County Fairgrounds when I was nine years old. So I, I had no idea that public speaking was one of the areas you could work. What an incredible skill to like start that early. And you're also, this is a really random memory that has never come up on this show, but I was once plucked from a crowd at a conference in high school or a very beginner college and I was asked to basically tell someone on stage how to tie their shoes, like verbally walk them through it. <laughs> and I have this like flashback to this moment every now and again. This like predates any, like I did not do like, you know, maybe when I was a little kid, I did some public speaking, but I had not done anything with my peers basically. And I just I have that moment of like, well, I did that. <laughs> and it went okay. <laughs> and the person uh, tied their shoes <laughs> and you taught people how to make oatmeal cookies. That's right. That's right. We all started somewhere, Robbie. You with the shoes, <laughs> me with the cookies. I, I, and to this day, I, I don't make oatmeal kit cookies because the practicing of that led to like so many batches of oatmeal cookies. Uh, that I'm you got all over them. Yeah. Yeah. So did you also find yourself sort of organizing your social circle? Were you that kind of kid? Oh, absolutely. You know, I was the kid who was trying to figure out who would do the best part of the 4-H booth or who would do the best part of this project. And in high school, I was really involved in arts and music. And I was always the one that was sort of helping the director as we were going through that process. So de yeah, definitely. I was the helper. Yeah. Part of it was because I've always been a big rule follower. I'm very disciplined. It's just ingrained in me. It's very hard now as a parent for that to work. <laughs> But yeah, I feel like I was always there to just support the authority figure. I always saw authority as that and always wanted to be the kid who was helping and seen as the person who could help us forward the, the momentum and the trajectory of where we were going. 
Was there someone in particular that you really looked up to and, and maybe you didn't think of them as a leader, but that when you think of now, you're like, that was the kind of leader I was aspiring to be? You know, I'm not one particular person pops in mind for me, but I can think of a lot of the teachers in my school growing up. Because of course, growing up in a very, very small town, you saw and got to know the teachers at all levels when you were little. So there's one instance I can think of now that it was a teacher who taught at the junior high level, but I was an elementary student. I walked into school one day, I went to the lunch money line, and I was going to go buy my milk ticket for the day. I think it was a dime at that point in time to buy your milk ticket. And I could not find the dime anywhere in my little knapsack that my mom packed for me. And I started crying because here's I'm the kid who wants my milk ticket. And a teacher walked up to me and he handed me a dime. And I looked up and it was Mr. Jones. He was the junior high English teacher. Well, I ended up having Mr. Jones not only in junior high, but he also moved up to the high school when I moved up to high school. So it's funny to think of him as the guy who gave me the dime when I was there crying in the lunch line. And I ended up being a student of his. But that kindness always stuck with me. And forever then in school, he and I were always passing a dime back and forth to one another. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to like wrap my head around 600 people in the entire town. And I want to give some context. I grew up in suburban Long Island, about an hour outside of New York City. And my graduating class for high school was an enormous... I'm preparing you for this number. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. It was... I graduated with 1,300 people in In my grade. In my class. And my sister, six years earlier when it was the largest class, it was 1,800. Wow. 1,800. So three times the number of people in your entire town. I mean, in college, I had classrooms that, you know, at least one classroom fit four or 500 people. And so I'm like, wow, like you obviously know everybody and everybody knows everything about you. Exactly. And I tell people that you can approach that in one of two ways when you're growing up in that kind of town. You can approach it as, oh man, everybody's in my business. They're going to know everything I do wrong. Or you can face that where everybody's got my back. They all know my parents. So if I'm in trouble, they know who to call. And I definitely was the kid who took that approach. It was definitely the, okay, you're there. You're there for me. You've got my back if I need you. And you know, like the the guy who helped me out with the lunch money, <laughs> it's true. And I, and I, le- I live my life that way now. And I think that's that's why I call what I do small town leadership. It's not because I'm a leader in a small town, but it's because the style of leadership I've taken with me wherever I've gone has been that small town style. That style yeah. of I've got your back. I know you've got mine too. This, this is great. And and I know that you have moved since back to Ohio, not to the place where you grew up, but to a, a smaller town. Um, not smaller than where you grew up, but a smaller than the city town. And... Um, but you had a, a world of experience between you know where you grew up and where you now are living. You were in California, you were in Silicon Valley, you were working for Fortune 100, you worked in uh, many different uh, sectors as well. And yet you carried with you, I think, this frame, right? This like worldview. Is that how you think of it? Because you were trying to fit your worldview in all these new spaces. How, how did that work? What was that like? You've nailed it 100%. So I think I realized what my style was, this frame, as you call it, when I was a freshman at Ohio State. So I walk onto campus, 48,000 students, 
6,000 students. That's not counting all the staff. And within my first week, I was like, this is amazing. No one knows who I am. I can go anywhere. I can do anything. I cannot do anything. I can drink the beer. I can do, you know, whatever I, the things that everyone where I grew up would have known. And after two weeks, I just got lonely. And I was like, okay, I don't want it to feel like that. I actually want to know people here. So from then forward, my mantra has been, okay, how can I make everywhere I go feel like Republic Ohio? So I took that with me for four years at Ohio State. By the end of graduating, I couldn't cross campus without seeing someone I know wave and say hi. And then I took that spirit with me when I moved to California when I had my first job out of college as well. It was how can I make Silicon Valley feel like home? Um, and then, yeah, I had the opportunity to to come back home and it's been a great full circle type of moment. Yeah. And so what were some of those tactics that you employed early on and, and did it, was it something you had to sort of decide to do or is it just so much a part of who you are? It's both for sure. You know, cause at, at heart I'm, I'm introverted and could have hidden in my dorm room for those four years at Ohio state. But when you combine this desire to lead that we talked about this, you know, this, little kid who is in 4-H who has a desire to lead with this desire to get to know people. I think it's combining those two innate qualities with the desire to say, okay, I can show up and make this place feel smaller and also improve it at the same time. So it's it was definitely hardest for me, I think, when I moved to California because that was different. You know, when you're in college, everyone is there trying to figure out who they are and where they want to be and that kind of thing. But when I moved to California, you know, in a work setting, people had their families, they had their things established. So for me, it was all about stepping into new projects. It was raising my hand to say, I want to do the thing. Hey, I can do that. I was an unknown quantity from Ohio coming to work at Stanford and didn't know people. So I A, had to prove myself, but B, I wanted to make it feel like home. So mm-hmm. because of that, I stepped forward and took on those projects, joined the boards, volunteered for the things. It's always been about involvement. So how can you then get involved in that community? Because I think that's one thing that small town people have that other people don't have down is how do you truly get involved and make your community your own and make it feel like that place you want to live and raise your family. Small town people have got that down. So uh, I moved to uh, from Long Island uh, where I grew up to uh, Boston, Massachusetts in around 2002. So it's been a while. And I was surprised that although most of the people I met, I mean, 90% of the people that I've met, even to this day, we're not born in like within, I'd say, 25 miles <laughs> of here. <laughs> and most travel from pretty far to have, to have gotten here. It's a pretty transient city. And yet they all sort of adopted the same armor around mm-hmm. like how making it really hard to meet each other because I think they had a really hard time meeting someone the first two years and finally got into a nice little rut you know, they knew the <laughs> job they wanted to go to. They knew the coffee shop. They knew the bar. They found someone to date. They had their circle of friends. And at that point, they weren't looking to meet anyone else, <laughs> even though they knew how hard it was. And I just didn't, I wanted to disrupt that. And sort of like you, I just was like, why? No, no, no. I'm a friendly New Yorker. Like, wh- I'm not going to just, what? I don't get it. <laughs> And um, I ended up starting a meetup group. So meetup.com, right? It's a great resource for starting in-person groups that are intended to be in-person. And uh, I founded a group called Socializing for Justice that ran for 11 years. 
hosted hundreds of events and grew to 3,000 plus members. And it was a cross-cultural, cross-issue, progressive community and network based on the philosophies of abundance and radical inclusion. And it is largely the like the basis, the, the foundation from which the rest of my career as a speaker and a coach is really formed is what I learned experimenting with that group, with what is it like to create these kind of spaces where people aren't just invited, but are truly welcomed. And it sounds like you and I share that sort of spirit of, you know, just because everyone's walking around, just like running to work, running back home, running to work, running back, like, how do we disrupt that? And it sounds like you've had some success with teaching this. And I like that you attach this to leadership because I've always thought it similarly, right? Like once someone has their sort of eyes open, it's hard for them to turn that off. Like once you've awakened within them a curiosity, uh, openness, a willingness to engage, like it's hard for them to go back to the room and hide for four years. Is that how you're Oh my gosh, that's beautifully stated. So congratulations on your meetup success. I think that's terrific. I've always gone the more traditional route, like join the alumni club in the area or join the board of the local nonprofit type of thing. So I've gone to the establishment. I love the people who have found ways to break through and create the new space. I learn a lot from that, which is terrific. One of the main things that I work with people who I coach as well as mentor is we we talk about their networking circles. So we talk about your inner circle, you know, your best friends, your best friends at work, that kind of people working out to your secondary connections, then to a periphery, and then finally to what I call your dream team, the people you'd love to meet, the people you'd love to have on your podcast, those people. And I, I work with people to fill that out and check back with them to see, okay, well, now that you've written that down, what are you doing with that list? How are you growing that? And oftentimes, so for those people I mentor inside my organization, we often start those meetings in the coffee shop and then I'll be down passing through the area. And then all of a sudden I start to see them meeting with more and more people down in the coffee shop. And that's when I can tell things are working. Is that okay? They're actually getting away from their desk. They're getting away from their day to day and trying to break out and break into new uh, networking circles within our organization, which is so incredibly important in any huge, large, complex. You're And you're uh, nationwide, is that correct? I am. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So that's your, so you have the day job where you get to play with these ideas and spread the ideas there and see how it works and how people take to it. And then you also have this sort of entrepreneurial spirit as well. Exactly. I am a nine to fiver and then I have the, the side biz to go along with it. That's awesome. So what do you find most rewarding about doing this kind of work? I love when people have that aha moment moment for themselves when they realize that they can get so much done by building relationships with other people. I think everyone holds them back thinking, well, who am I to connect with so-and-so? Or who am I to invite this person to lunch or coffee? But like we know, once you escape from your circle of comfort and you get a little uncomfortable and it goes well, or you learn something, then you're going to keep doing that. So that's what's most most rewarding to me is helping people get outside that circle of comfort and into a place of growth. And I imagine that as someone you you're you said earlier you identify as an introvert that you also could be reassuring to other people who identify as introverts that there's a way for them to do that without having to be a busy social butterfly. 100% because I you know going back to the whole idea of how I've made this successful for me for me I've made it about one-on-one connections I've made it about taking the time to meet for 30 minutes with someone new 
and being okay with that. I, I don't do well at big networking events and large gatherings. They really freak me out. I end up you know, hiding in the corner a little bit or it takes a lot of preparation for me to get ready. So I need someone like you to help psych me up to go into those types of settings. But yes, it is reassuring, reassuring to tell people it's okay. One step at a time, one one person at a time. I truly believe our our networks are formed one person at a time, and they're nurtured one person at a time. One of the uh, episodes that gets mentioned to me most frequently is an interview I did with um, Moore Aaron's Melee, who wrote a book called Hiding in the Bathroom. <laughs> she has a <laughs> podcast by the same name. Um, she advised very strongly with being an introvert. I think you should check it out. And I think anyone listening to this and it's resonating, we'll, we'll want to hear that. So we'll put a link in the show notes. But I think what people have said they really appreciate about her is that while she identifies strongly as a person who's not just an introvert, but who's super anxious about these social situations, she's not like luffing her way through it. She's like, nope, this is still hard. <laughs> she still runs a company like, you know, establish herself, is known, is is creating like a brand and a following and it's like possible. So I think I partly wanted to underscore that you had said that earlier because I am an outgoing extrovert. I have never, ever been thought of as a wallflower. And so when I first got started talking about this, it was hard for me because people expect that when you're good at something, you have a story that goes something like, I used to be just like you. I used to be this kind of person. And then I discovered this secret trick and now I'm going to teach you. And I'm like, no, I've never been just like you. (laughs) But I do know what it feels like not to feel like you belong. And it feels like that sense of belonging is really core to your identity. You kept saying you wanted to make a place feel like your home again. Yes. Even though there was 48,000 students plus who knows how many additional faculty, staff, et cetera. So, um, yeah, that that feeling of wanting to like feel like a place is yours. And I, I think what's interesting is that that's not a feeling that's, you know, just the two of us. I, I think a lot of people share that, but you have come up with a way to make that happen and you're teaching others, which is really fantastic. What are some of the success stories you've had like when once people have these aha moments? Like how are they applying this as they as they sort of adopt this attitude, this mindset in a way? I think there's two ways about it. So for some, it's as simple as opening up their social media channels. So they actually get on LinkedIn and start to do something with it. They're they're sending the personal note to connect with people and then they're doing stuff on the platform versus just, you know, spying around at people's profiles. So that's a simple step, but for some people it's huge. And then for others, it's it's helped them leapfrog into new jobs um, by them actually just connecting with people and saying, here's who I am and what I do well. And then coaching together with them over a period of time to say, you know, there is no magic bullet to your point earlier. You're not just going to walk into that meeting and someone's going to say, oh, you've got the job. But to introduce people, they can start to have those relationships. And then when you cultivate those relationships, come back to them, have the right conversations, bring the right resources. All of a sudden, I'm seeing people right now starting new jobs who wouldn't have anticipated that a year ago, but because they've had a built their network and kept it warm. It's been there when they needed it. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of a warm network because I think people um, who aren't, uh, you and I are sort of living and breathing the idea of relationships. So to us, it's core to who we are. It's going to be built into whatever we do. But for a lot of people, I, I think 
this is almost an external part of their work. They think about networking and, and relationship building as sort of a, a nice to have, um, but not critical. And I think of it as like insurance. You know, we never buy insurance with the intention of needing to use it. But if we ever needed to use it, it's there. And I think similarly, the people like you're describing who have cultivated uh, and nurtured and sustained this, these connections as they develop them, then good things will kind of, possibilities at least, will come from that. Whereas the people who find themselves sort of suddenly out of work and they hadn't been doing that, and then they go on LinkedIn <laughs> and then they go, hey, you spam everyone. Hey, I haven't talked to you in 10 mm-hmm. years. I'm looking for work. And that's like, that's a horrible moment for everybody because no one wants to receive that message out of the blue, having a cold, random message. And no one wants to be in the business of doing those messages either. But how do you inspire people to make the effort when they're not, quote unquote, in need of something? It's by telling a story just like you tell, right? And I think because I grew up seeing people in and out of work and knowing even in a small town how those things happen and knowing the right people, it's just encouraging people. Right now, I actually do have a number of friends who are looking at uh, you know, a, a layoff. And for those who have done the things about keeping their networking warm, they're in a completely different position than those who, to your point, didn't think they would need the insurance. So there's, this is a real thing. And I think the thing that has to go along with that, Robbie, is also recognizing about how you keep your skills fresh too. So it's one thing to have your network in place and, and have people know who you are and what you're bringing to the table. I think there's a, a whole other side of that too, to just recognize, okay, well, what are those skills? How do I bring that up when I'm talking to this person? That way they know they know how to call on me and how do I keep those updated that way when the next wave of things might happen, I know that I'm, I'm ready and I've got that even second insurance policy. I've got the network built and I've also got the skill build happening too. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's funny in some ways it's an abundant way of thinking, but it's also, it, it's such a protection long, long term, but it's abundant in the sense that you believe that like putting this out into the world, like good things will come and, you know, being present. I I always have thought that, and I've written about this actually, that being an extrovert, particularly an outgoing extrovert, um, it's, it's a privilege. Like I, meaning that I don't work very hard to be out in the world. Um, You know, and I think when you're out in the world, that's good. Like people see you, right. They like, remember you. Um, and if, if you're not someone who makes that effort or if it's a lot of effort to do it, I could see how those people maybe make a different calculus and don't go out as, as much. Um, but you've, you sort of said earlier that your, um, your MO is more of these one-on-one kind of sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you have like a, are you systematic? Are you like, I want to have this many a month or this many a week, or these are the kinds of people I'm going to reach out to or do you have a list you work from or like, or is it just, I, I like, Hey, I like meeting you. Let's meet for coffee. It's, it's so funny you say this because typically being the disciplined person, regimented person I am, you would think I would be like, Oh, I have a number and I'm going to hit it. But honestly, I go with the flow as it comes to meeting people and, and it really does ebb and flow. So there are months when I find myself getting contacted frequently or I meet people and really want to connect with them. And I find myself squeezing in all these short phone conversations or meetups like we're having now. And there are other parts where it's just kind of, it's dead and there's not much going on. So right now I just, I'm going with the flow. I'm not forcing things. So if I see something 
happen on social media or any of the various Facebook groups I'm on, I'll chime in and offer words of support. And if that leads to something that's terrific, and if not, then, hey, you know, I'm, I'm out there and being active and the, the things will come when it's time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, one thing I've done with my clients uh, in, my, in my online coaching program is I, I have what I call like a touch points that uh, they have to have two touch points a week. And I define a touch point. It's not just that you liked something, <laughs> um, <laughs> but a touch point would be more, it would be like uh, writing a review for someone's book or someone's podcast, um, sharing a particular resource to them that is timely for what they were looking for, scheduling like a chat or get to know you coffee, um, you know, something that takes a little more effort um, than just liking something. And my, my hope, my goal is that after they've done that for the first 12 weeks, they've actually, uh, it's become just sort of second nature. And it, like you said, it's not that they're trying to have just two a week. It's that they're now looking, they're like open to and looking for those possibilities. And I do think it's a skill set to know how to approach people, make that suggestion, schedule things quickly, and like have a system down for making it easy. Right. Cause I can imagine like you, you must have a, a go-to coffee shop and like I use a scheduling link, you know, to get to schedule these quick chats. And I just think for some people that that's the hurdle. <laughs> they just mm-hmm. like, they, they're like, it, gosh, it'd be so difficult. So I partly want to get people to the point where that that's super easy. They know how to use zoom. They know where they'd meet in person. And then I think it's more likely for them to do it. Does that kind of jive with what you've experienced? hundred percent. And I have these blocks of time and it's during my commute. It's that's when I have time to connect with people on the phone. So I, you know, hands-free of course, but will offer up those two hours in my day when I know I'll be in the car for not the full two hours, but most of it. And we can have a touch base at that point in time. So that's become one of my regular chat times, you know, whether that's with good friends that I already know or, or new people, new people I try to do when I'm not in the car for the first meeting. But if it's a, if it's a catch up, a second touch base, then let's do that between the hours of eight and 9am or between the hours of 4.30 and 5.30. And yeah, I'm, I'm not doing anything else except getting from A to B. Yeah, that's great. I have a friend when I call her, she works from home. So when I call her, she always says, where are you walking? Because <laughs> she knows that I'm calling her really randomly because I know she's available. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I've got 10 minutes while I'm walking. Like, hey, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and you're comfortable picking up the phone and making that call from the extrovert position. I tend to have all my meetings scheduled. It's just the difference between... Well, most know. of my calls are actually scheduled because I'm a working home dad with two little kids. And so That's right. Yeah. It's hard for me to have phones <laughs> just randomly ring. I, I don't know what I'd be in the middle of. Um, but so I have to know the handful of people that I can actually do that. Um, uh, Susan Rowan, who I interviewed many, uh, gosh, more than a year ago, she's, she's been writing in this space around networking relationship building for like 30 years. And she calls them make hay while the sun shines calls. Hay stands for how are ya? <laughs> so, <laughs> and, uh, and I always like to joke that, you know, people forget that the device in their pocket actually makes phone calls. A hundred percent. Yeah. One of the, the blogs I've written is, is just, if you're thinking about that person, pick up the phone and make the call. 
Yeah. Don't hesitate or shoot the text if you can't manage to actually use your voice in that moment, but do something. Something is better than nothing in those periods of time. Yeah. So Natalie, you, you said earlier that the conferences and large events aren't really your thing. Is that is it part of what happens throughout the year? Do you do you attend these kinds of events? It depends. Um, I, I did attend a couple of conferences this year as either an attendee or a speaker, and it was part of small town leadership. So when I, I find when I'm there to present, it's a way different experience than being there as a participant. So being there as a presenter, you know, I, I obviously have my lens toward the audience and have a way to connect with people pretty easily. Like, yeah, I'll be the speaker after lunch type of thing. And as an attendee, I just have to prepare that much more. It's finding that list of people who I want to meet with, connecting with them on LinkedIn ahead of time, trying to make sure that we've got something scheduled during the actual conference, but then also giving myself permission to sneak out of the cocktail hour and head back to my hotel room because I've had a day. Like mm-hmm. I also give myself that kind of permission. I think it's really important. I've gone to the, this co- annual conference for the last 20 years or so. And I've run their first timers orientation for probably the last 15 years. And I always said, you know, it's, it's I don't know, 4,000 people or something. It's enormous. And I would say, you know, pick three things a day that you're going to go to and make one of them just for you. Like either a topic you really care about or a social connection that you're really looking forward to. And once you've determined those three things, then everything else may not happen. That's fine. Because you might have the most amazing conversation in the lobby, in the elevator on the way back to your room. <laughs> um, if you need to recharge, you'll just be more present for like later on that night. And even for me, I think it's important to, to keep track of that. Like, what are your goals? Because I could lose track and then just like sit down in a corner of the bar with one person for four hours, which may not be meeting the goals that I had, uh, even though it's a great conversation. So like having some sense of that and, and making sure I'm moving forward. So I do hope that before your next one, you have you take a look at the book that I wrote, because I feel like that would be really up your alley. I think you're going to jive with the, the, the techniques that you've already mentioned a few of the ones. Um, but here's my favorite tip for you, which I think will resonate. Write your follow-up email before you go to the event. It's a draft. You're not hitting send. (laughs) But it kind of makes you think about who's going to be there. Why am I going? Why this event in particular? What do I want to learn? What inspiration am I looking for? And what value can I bring, right? What am I offering? And having that and and like a system for tracking cards while you're there and scheduling the hour for the follow-up before you go to the event, schedule the hour. If you do those things, like then you'll actually get more out of the experience because, you know, honestly, you don't go to conferences just for content because we can get content from the comfort of our home in your yoga exactly. pants. <laughs> we don't have to leave the house. So we go for the connection. It sounds like for you, leveraging your time there while giving yourself the space is sort of a, it's like a balancing act, it sounds like. 100%. Yeah. I feel like all of life is a balancing act as a busy working mom with, I have two little ones at home as well and the full-time job and running a small business as well. It's there's no rest for the weary. Um, that's why I I always get happy when I can fill the hour at night after bedtime with a meaningful conversation, or you know the next thing I'm going to write that type of thing. That way, finding all the ways to fit that stuff in is is a challenge. But when I do it, I feel like I've mastered a puzzle at the end of the week. <laughs> <laughs> well, so speaking of of the success that you're having, when we're reconnecting a year from now, and we'll stay in touch until then, I'm sure. But uh, we're we're 
I want to know, like, we're going to be like talking about all of the success that you've had in the previous year. I want to know, what are we going to be celebrating? What are you looking forward to in the next year? I am looking forward to growing the audience who's following small town leadership's work in a substantial way. And I'm looking forward to, and we'll be reporting out on publishing my first book in 2019. Oh, that is so exciting and so much work. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> That's awesome. So Natalie, where can people find you and follow your work? They can find me at smalltownleadership.com. And that has all my social links. It's pretty easy to find me. I'm Natalie Siston on all the, all the places. And I'm very active on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Robbie. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Natalie. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share it resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 127. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance, and I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on their way to becoming successful leaders. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.